Welcome to Moja Sessions, the podcast powered by Amazingly Africa for Africans and descendants of Black Africa around the globe. In these roundtable discussions, we will be talking numbers, facts, data, and solutions. My name is Linda Fwiting, and I am your host. Let's start today's episode with a little game of natural resources in Africa. Let's start with the center of Africa the easiest country to guess, uh, Congo. What kind of natural resources does Congo have? Well, I think Congo has a lot of resources, but I can think of gold, uranium, diamond, I guess, and some timber as well. Okay, let's go to Niger. What do you guys think? What's in Niger? Uranium, maybe? Yep, Niger has a huge stockpile of uranium. Okay, let's go to Burundi. What does Burundi have? I think that we have nickels, uh, but also tea could be one of the dominant exports. What are some countries that may have fish? Islands could be a hint. The Kumalos. Malawi does have a huge fishing industry. I think Tanzania had uh, some uh, some uh, some fish in Lake Victoria, and that was uh, a big issue. You guys should check it out. It's called the Darwin's uh, Nightmare. It's a documentary. Check it out. It's pretty dope. Thanks for that. I definitely will. Okay, petroleum. What are some countries that have petroleum? Definitely Nigeria. There is a lot of billionaires there. Yeah, I was gonna go for the low hanging fruit too. You have your Egypt. You have your Libyas as well. Let's not forget Cameroon, Black Gold, Algeria. They definitely have it. And one last one. Let's say gold. Gold, gold, gold. Tanzania, right? Tanzania. Definitely Tanzania. Definitely South Africa. Sudan. Ghana, the Gold Coast. There we go. I was waiting. Come on, guys. <laughs> if this was graded by time, we would have lost. But at least we know a little bit about our continent. Joining me today is Biko Iyumagaba, who is a revolutionary Pan-Africanist who is currently studying economics at Brown University. Boyd Chokomolefi, who is a policy analyst and is currently working on bridging knowledge gaps between communities and practitioners to create equitable policies. And Chance Kinyangi Boas, who is an Afropolitan and holds a bachelor degree in business administration and is an accountant from Brown University. Today, we're going to be talking about capital. And in economics, capital is one of the four factors of production that drive supply. Capital is not to be confused with capitalism and financial capital, which we will also be discussing today. But in terms of economics, capital includes durable goods such as machinery, equipment, and tools, which are used to create other products. And then the other three factors of production are natural resources, which are the raw materials, entrepreneurship or the drive to profit from innovation and labor, which refers to employees. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Linda Foinding, and in this 
episode of Umoja Sessions, which is titled The State of Capital in Africa, we will be talking about why it is important for us to know our assets and our resources and our capital in Africa. So before starting off, I want to just talk about the elephant in the room, which is capital versus capitalism. Capitalism is an economic and political system in which a country's trade and industry are controlled by private owners for profit rather than by the state. And this is from Oxford Dictionary. And I would like to make it clear that we are not endorsing capitalistic doctrines here. So if you're having a hard time with the word capital, for the purposes of this podcast, you can think of it as cash or as an asset, as I mentioned before. But Chance, would you like to start us off by telling us a little bit about financial capital? Yes. Like you say, there's a full product, full factor production in economics but for me, uh, for coming from a, a business school, usually when I think about capital, I think in terms of business, you know. Capital in business, it means equity. Sometimes it can mean, uh, it also mean debts. It can mean investment. It can also mean working capital. The most important type of uh, financial capital that are very common to a lot of folks is equity and debt. In terms of debt, is more of like when the government borrowed money to build a national factory. For example, this was very common after the, the war of independence in most Africa countries where the government had to borrow money from either the IMF or the, any investor interested in promoting the advancement of the country. That type of uh, debt is usually associated with cost of capital, which is like interest when you have to pay interest on on the amount that you borrow. Equity comes in terms of like from uh, uh from the United States is that when you invest in say Microsoft or Apple's you either can be equity investor and you get paid dividend. Thank you so much for this little financial recap, honestly, because we didn't all go to business school, but we all need to know about these important concepts. It's really good for us to know our financial capital in general, but also what are the different ways that we can go about making profit for the continent, for African people. So I know, Biko, you're quite familiar with private ownership and custodianship. So would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I'll go with the private ownership and then I'll hand it to, to Bob to a little bit talk about the, the former. Uh, for private ownership, essentially, I think you mentioned that in the beginning and that was, it's a system of private property and then it's essentially connected to capitalism the way we know it. It's not just like a, a system of private property, but it's also a system of beliefs, sort of like Christianity and Islam, you know, all these things. In fact, it's say that capitalism emerges out of like the ruins of Christianity. So the system of private property emerges out of Europe around like 300 years ago and it's essentially about the resources that are owned by private individuals. These private individuals like determine what to produce and when to produce and how to produce. Essentially, they answer all those economic questions without the involvement of the state. Very recently, we have even seen uh, economic policies, which I think is really very bad economics, where people advocate for a total removal of the state and the economy should be 
controlled by only private individuals and those who are going to be the ones who are allocating the resources. So I think that's pretty much about the private property per se, but capitalism itself uh, being a system is very huge. It has a lot of concepts. It's very hard to contemplate because it's a system that is very well functioning, that is practically, but also it also has an, a layer of it being a system of beliefs as well. Yeah, thanks a lot for that, Biko. Bo, would you like to continue a little bit and tell us about the latter part, please? Yes. So when it comes to this idea of um, private property, uh, as Biko brought it up, uh, so the, the Europeans in their conquest of Africa were experimenting with these concepts as one of the ploys of gaining access to land in, in terms of creating this eminent domain type argument when interacting with um, monarchs in African contexts to acquire land for their own you know, interests. But when we retroactively look at the, his, the, the history of a lot of these you know, developing contexts, particularly speaking in Africa, is that the idea of land was around custodianship of those in power being responsible for adjudicating best uses of land under advisory systems from you know people within those communities when we look at that paradigm of kind of resource management whether it's labor whether it's cash capital whether it's equity when we begin to understand the foundational perspectives that African institutions of government put in place to create systems that manage economies. We then see that there is a need and a value for uh, African spaces to begin to rethink the, the way we kind of imagine and mechanize the, the, the resources that we have at our disposal. I think this issue of uh, land in terms of private ownership and custodianship is something that we don't really usually talk about. And we're not all familiar with that topic because we either live in places where ownership is the one all and be all. And we, we don't really know about the other ways and forms in which we could take advantage of our land, take advantage of the resources that we have at hand without completely taking it over and making it inaccessible for others to have. Now, now that we're talking about land, it seems quite easy to also talk about natural resources. And I would like to say that natural resources, we were playing the game earlier today, but in terms of money-wise and things like that, they're basically resources that exist without the actions of humankind, hence the term natural. So they're materials or substances such as minerals, forests, water, and fertile land that occur in nature, and they can be used for economic gain. Now, Africa has the potential to grow its capital on home soil by using its own natural resources and exporting them uh, for profit and manufacturing it on home soil instead of importing everything. I know that we've all lived through the bird flu epidemic because we were importing chickens from Europe and things like that. And we ended up with the diseases and even with the mad cow and things like that. When that meat was banned in Europe, it was still being being sold on home soil in Africa. And so these are things that we inherit because we do not take the initiative to 
to manufacture on a grand scale, to really bring a product from start to finish at home with our own resources. Now, can we talk a little bit about that? Why are we not doing that? And how can we go about doing that instead of always consuming secondhand food, clothing, and whatnot from the rest of the world? Well, if I could jump in, one of the things I think is very central to the discussion and the question that you just posed is uh, how do we mobilize whatever we have to benefit the African people? Because that's the question. I don't think anybody really has doubts that the African continent is the most rich and resourceful continent in the world because like we were pointing out how we have almost everything that we need in terms of natural resources. But then the question becomes who gets to benefit from those resources? And it's very obvious that it's definitely not the African people, mostly the Europeans who built most of their wealth from uh, uh, exploiting the natural resources of the African continent. But even like after the Second World War, the Americans began to also come in. Now we're seeing also like Chinese uh, jumping in to exploit those resources. And there is like a direct partnership between the elites of those nations with the elites of the African continent. So in general, they're the ones who benefit from these natural resources. So I think around the same question is how do we use those type of resources and mobilize them to benefit the interests of the African continent? And I think one of the things that needs to be done is to extract these things, but also manufacture them into the African continent. If we're saying, for instance, we have cotton, or we have oil, or we have gold, we need to refine them within our continent so that they are used to benefit the African people. So that's why I think they end up benefiting everybody else but Africans. I would like to add on that point as well, that one of the things we might want to look into, the way of redefining capital as for Africans. There's a, there's a question in, uh, in economics of taking financial capital as uh, an element, as a, a fifth factor of production, you know? But I think that for the African continent, our resources need to be looked at uh, more differently than the rest of the world because the example I give is that for Djibouti, if you think about Djibouti is is uh, strategically located, and what that means is that ten percent of all oil exports, when that oil comes from the Suez Canal between Egypt, I believe, and Israel, it has to go through Djibouti in order to reach the India Ocean. So that oil to flow through the East Africa or furthermore down south, when the ship just passed through the Suez Canal they must go through the straits in Djibouti. Or 10% of all commercial goods has to go through that. And that was reported at Washington Post. That location itself can be a resource and it can be a capital to that country. And the way that works is that Djibouti currently owe uh, China finance the port in Djibouti and uh, they finance the construction and they build the, the, the port, which is uh, the biggest port in Africa. So Djibouti had to borrow a lot of money from China to build this port. And right now, Djibouti has fall, fallen behind to make payments on, on the loan. And what happened in this situation is that China government 
have come in and take over the port, just like they did in Sri Lanka. This put Djibouti at a huge disadvantage. And if this uh, strait was considered as a resource with this much potential that it's you can't really calculate how much potential we have, but it has huge value because if Djibouti decide to not allow Asian uh, China to own this port, then there were no goods. So there must be way to use the port as an incentive to be able to borrow cash. I think you're making a really great point there, Chance, in terms of using our land and geographic locations as assets as well. It can't be seen physically or touched physically, but it is, uh, for example, in terms of Djibouti, a strategic military base in terms of trade and things like that. So I I definitely agree with your point. Bo, would you tell us a little bit more um, about the independence agreements in terms of Zimbabwe? maybe, and uh, the Lancaster Agreement? Yes. Um, So I think that a lot of the conversations that we have around capital, at least the state of capital in in the African context, really is a lot of times removed from kind of the historical background that sets the tone for it. So when you look at Zimbabwe, for example, and the land issue uh, or like the land crisis that came up uh, in the early 2000s, right? that it stems from the failure of the Lancaster Agreement, which was an independence agreement uh, Zimbabwe had signed with, 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 with the British. And the British government, at, at, uh, according to this agreement, was supposed to fund the willing buyer, willing seller land repatriation system that was put in place. And when Zimbabwe, uh, during the administration of Margaret Thatcher, went back and said, hey, time for, for the country to make good on its promise, the, you know, the United Kingdom said, well, Margaret Thatcher said, well, no, this is not an agreement that I signed, that my administration signed, so therefore we have no obligation to fulfilling this agreement with you. And so what we then find, at the end of it all, the assessment of what is valuable in economics is constantly being viewed from a Eurocentric paradigm or what benefits white culture and white aspiration. And that in order for the African to begin to redirect and to channel Africa's independence, there has to be a very deliberate process of saying we have to redefine what these resources mean to us. And secondly, we then have to sit at the table and say, well, if you really value this resource, China, this is what you have to then contend with in terms of payment or what the value of this resource is, right? Because ultimately, the, ir- the irony of it is that we don't set the, the price market for our own resources, that um, the gold price is determined by some you know, white guy you know, in whatever part of the world, but it's produced right where we live, right where we stay, right? And so fundamentally, we still exist and find ourselves looking at the valuation of African assets from the perspective of what it does to what it does to enhance kind of the white aspiration. And then we therefore need to break away from that if we are to, you know, successfully progress. I think that's a great way to put it in terms of what it is that we need for ourselves and for our own progression. I think that it's safe to say that not only does this all 
go under the element of capital, of assets, and all of that. But the one thing that we have not yet talked about is labor, the labor force, or as it used to be called or might still be called, human capital. With that term, it's a bit tricky to talk about human capital because of the history of the term. That's the term that they used uh, to describe slaves because they were part of the cattle and the, the, the assets of the farm and things like that. That's how they were counted during slavery in America. But for the purposes of this podcast, we would like to use the term human resource capital. I would like to expand a little bit about that. And it, just to give you guys a bit of a background, so human resource capital it's basically not tangible. It's an asset ca- that cannot really be seen or touched. It's not listed on, on any company's balance sheet or on a government's balance sheet either. But it can be classified as the economic value of a worker's experience and skills. So this includes assets like their education, their training, their intelligence, their skills, their health, and other things valuable that employers will deem valuable or countries will deem valuable. Now, some governments have recognized that the relationship between human capital and the economy exists. So what they do is that they provide higher education at little or no cost. Like A lot of countries in Europe do that. And people who participate in the workforce who have that higher education will usually make larger salaries, which means that they will be able to spend more and therefore contribute to the country's um, economy. Now, in terms of Africa, we experience what a lot of people want to call a brain drain. That's what economists have dubbed this thing that is happening in Africa where this human resource capital tends to migrate in this global economy. And it often happens where there's a shift from developing places like in Africa and rural areas, and they will go to more developed places like the in Europe or Japan or the United States for most of our intellectuals. And the problem with that, it's that it's making the poorer countries poorer and the richer countries richer. I'd like us to talk about that a little bit more. Well, if I could just jump in on that, uh, I think it's one of the important points that has to be stressed, especially on how do we move forward in terms of rejuvenating the the African continent's wealth and and creating that kind of uh, uh, momentum that we want. It's uh, one of the things we have right now is we have the youngest population in the world. About 60% and above of the African population is the youth. Uh, But despite that, we're seeing them like crossing the Mediterranean, like seeking for quote-unquote better opportunities, which whenever they go to Europe, they're also discriminated against. And that is very clear, the, the type of racism that we're seeing right there and the response against the immigrants is a kind of threatening, actually, right now, if you think about it, with the rise of this type of uh, fascist regimes and anti-blackness that we're seeing across the, 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 the entire continent. It's, it's very worrying. And so I think so much has to be done. And you were pointing out a very good point, which is invest in education, but also invest in education so that it eventually benefits the African continent. Because we have a situation where like, we have a lot of trained people living in Europe, living in America, living in a different places across the, the, the entire globe, working like 
there is there is a saying that there is a lot of Nigerian doctors in the U.S. than there is in Nigeria. There is a lot of trained economists working for the World Bank, working for the these institutions that are involved in colonial occupation and, 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 and oppression of the African continent that are putting their resources use of the oppressor. And it's not because of them. I think it's bad policies and leadership within the African continent because there has to be an incentive to bring those people in to mobilize them, to organize them to uh, go back to the African continent. So I think first and foremost, it falls down to the leadership that doesn't provide the incentive. The second thing, though, I think this is on an individual basis. Everybody, every African who feel concerned about the situation of the African continent should understand that it's not enough to critique what's going on. It's very good, like, you know, I meet a lot of people uh, in the diaspora and they, they're raising all these great points, uh, myself included, you know, like we're so frustrated about our leaders, but what are we doing about it? You know, like, so we're sending money, that's well and good, but Africa needs you. Africa needs your resources, they need your brain, they need your presence, your energy, your existence on that continent creates a different kind of dynamic. And so I think we need to move to a different kind of mindset where we feel like we, the African people, must invest our time, resources, and energy on that continent in terms of like investing in education, but also putting whatever we have, intellectual resources, physical resources, to the betterment of that continent. If you can't do that, stop singing about the African continent because it's not just these leaders who have disappointed us. Yes, they have. And I think everybody now sees it. It's not every leader, but like most leaders. But what are you doing about it? You know, so it falls to us, we the African people, to do something about it. And I think that is going to be critical and a game changing. Thanks a lot for those final thoughts, Biko. Chance and Bo, would you like to say something else about human resource capital before we close off? Yeah, I mean, I really, I really agree with uh, with what Biko said and uh, what you said in this term of like uh, human resource capital. Uh, it's very known that the the African continent is the demographic is changing and is changing in a good way. You know, where we have 60% of the population being uh, young and youth. This is an advantage if you compare to the to other countries uh, like the United States, uh, where you see that the U.S. growth rate by decade is declining. We currently are 7%. And what really that mean is that it will get to a point where you don't have a workforce. You have a workforce, but basically is the current workforce you have is the baby boomer who are retiring and there's no one to replace them in this, either in this, in the factory, in uh, finance, in the in economy, you won't be able to replace them. So I think that it's time for, um, for the African and the African government to see the, that the, the youth that we have is the resource that we have where we can create, uh, instead of building things like a stadium in Zambia, maybe we should focus on creating a, a university that specializes in 
uh, agricultural research or a manufacture plant. I think this, this will be a good date strategy where it not, it's not necessarily you borrowing to invest in a manufacture plant uh, that will help the, the youth get employed and therefore contribute to the economy. I think that's where we should strive and, and keep that awareness going. We'll see a lot of change. I think the demographic is changing for good for Africa. I'd say in conclusion, Africa needs to think about its resources from the perspective of building capacity. And by building capacity, this means improving opportunities for labor, improving the potential energy within capital, improving the efficiency of our infrastructures used, and and, and really positioning the environment with which we live and work in to be one that favorably enhances the abilities and strengths of the people who work in that environment. And I think that the more we intently think about ourselves, at least in our resources, as these means to bringing this new sense of quality of life and quality of living and working experience, we will move forward you know, as a continent in, in ways that affirm our own value, but also assert our own priorities within the scope of development. Thank you so much for your final thoughts, Bo, Chance, and Biko. Our continent has the, the youngest population of the entire world, with over 60% below the age of 25, as Biko said. It's safe to say that Africa has an enormous amount of capital coming from various sources, such as the aforementioned ones. And in order for the continent to capitalize on the various sources of economic growth, we really must be able to generate a sustainable plan that will provide resources and benefits to all those involved. We must reverse the brain drain and invest in the improvement and adjustment of all institutions necessary for the emancipation of our civilization. Thank you for listening to Umoja Sessions. My name is Linda Foinding. I am a princess warrior and an Afro-optimist.